I'm Nick Spencer, and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Listen with us, and we'll introduce you to conversations about the human brain, meritocracy, inequality, dementia, and human rights. Approximately 850,000 people in the UK today are living with dementia. Over half the population knows someone who has been diagnosed with it. An estimated one in three people born this year will develop it. The economic cost of the disease, although I'm never quite sure how this has worked out, is calculated at £26 billion in the UK and over a trillion dollars worldwide. These are huge numbers but they're not the real story. The real story is people like you and me whose lives and those of their friends and loved ones are changed irrevocably by a diagnosis that demands we live and think differently. In particular, it invites us to think afresh about ourselves and ourselves, our individual identity and our shared humanity. Or, to quote the novelist and journalist Nicky Gerrard, What is it to be alive, after all? In 2013, Nicky's father, John, went into hospital. He'd had dementia for 10 years. He died a year later. Nicky cared for and observed her father over that final year, and, having researched and spoken to many people about dementia, she wrote a book about the condition and her experience of it. What Dementia Teaches Us About Love is a poignant and perceptive memoir and exploration of the disease and what it says about our humanity. Nikki, welcome to Reading Our Times. I'm really, really pleased to be here. Thank you for having me, Nick. First, most importantly, tell me about your father, John. Yes, so my father had Alzheimer's and he lived with that for about 10 years. He was a doctor and he was also a businessman. But above all, he had a deep love of the natural world. And for 10 years, he lived quite happily with the condition. He was still the man that I'd always known, very competent, less so as the disease progressed, slightly mysterious to me more so as the disease progressed. Very affectionate, very modest, very honourable, I'd say. Very sweet. Everybody loved him. You couldn't not love him if you met him. So that was what it was like for the first 10 years of his illness. And then he went into hospital. And while he was there, first of all, it was a hospital where there were very rigid visiting hours. And then there was an outbreak of norovirus. It feels kind of horribly apposite today to be thinking about it. There was an outbreak of an infection, which meant that the hospital closed its doors to visitors and we couldn't see him at all. So he was in hospital for five weeks, which is far too long to be in hospital. (laughs) And we saw him very infrequently. And then, because we were so horribly obedient to the law, we saw him not at all. So he went out, he went into the hospital, mobile, pretty articulate, healthy and contented. And when I went to collect him, 
when I realised what was going on, I got my power of attorney papers and I went and I insisted he come home. And I went to collect him and I honestly, I, I barely recognised him. He'd lost, he'd lost something like a third of his body weight. He looked absolutely skeletal. He couldn't sit up in bed. He couldn't lift his arms. He couldn't talk any longer. He couldn't put a sentence together. He could barely put a word together. He didn't know who I was. And he, he felt like he'd become a ghost in his own life. And that I, we thought, me and my family, we thought if we took him back home to my mother and we, if we provided him with round-the-clock care and if we did all those things that we hadn't done while he was lying there in hospital, probably feeling lost and bewildered and abandoned by us if we did all those things then we could somehow get him back if you like so we held his hand talked to him played him music fed him food that he loved read him poetry stroked his hair looked into his eyes called him by his name told him that we loved him did those things that, which for five weeks we had failed to do. Then we thought we would be able to get him back, but we didn't ever get him back. And he, so he lay downstairs in his little room that we'd made for him in the house, looking out at the garden, which he could no longer go into or work in. And he was like that for nine months. And I, those nine months were really horrible. He wasn't living any longer. He was very slowly and very sadly dying. He was, if you like, the source of the book that I wrote and of the campaign that I launched. But also, he profoundly altered the way I thought about what it is to have a life, what it is to be a human. There is a deeply painful irony in going into hospital, the place that we usually associate with getting better and coming out worse, coming out diminished, and coming out diminished not for any clinical reason, but because of the solitude, not being not with people and not with loved ones. That goes right to the heart, doesn't it, of so much of what you talk about in the book, those relationships. Absolutely, it goes to the heart. I mean, he went into hospital with leg ulcers, and they did cure, they cured his leg ulcers. In that hospital, the nurses were kind, the doctors were kind. They did not have the time or really the imagination in some ways to treat him like a person, like a self. So they treated him like a patient, like a body in a bed and they didn't think of his selfhood. And what we realised too late for my father was that the, the mind is very precarious and the mind of someone who has dementia is infinitely precarious. And what somebody with dementia crucially needs are people to kind of keep them attached to the world that they love. So though I, I kind of thought quite a lot about this when I was writing the book about what it is to kind of have a voice. And to have a voice, it seems to me, is about kind of speaking and being heard. And I don't just mean with language, I mean with touch, with everything. So the world flows into you and the world flows out of you like a form of psychic breathing someone called it and that was absolutely what my father did not have all those links to the world were cut um and it was it was irretrievable 
There's a profound line in the book around communication and language. You talk about the artist William Utemolen, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 1995 and did a series of self-portraits, which managed to articulate, if that's the right word, to communicate what his condition was like in a way that words so often singularly fail to. You, you say at one point, language just strains to accommodate a condition that is profoundly connected to the failure of language. This is so much about our selfhood being connected to the way we communicate with others, isn't it? It so is. And I mean, William Mutterwollen is a really extraordinary example of how there are ways of staying connected to the world, even when we lose the ways that we most take for granted. So very commonly in the later stages of dementia, not always, but very commonly, people lose all ability to express themselves verbally. Words, words fall away, words fail. Um, that kind of connectivity we get through language, through speaking to each other, fail. What William Utamolan did, I mean, he was an example of someone who was absolutely desolated and depressed when he was first diagnosed with dementia. And in fact, he pretty much had turned his face to the wall, according to his widow, Patricia Utamolan. And it was a nurse during a hospital stay, who persuaded him to pick up his paintbrush again. He was somebody who lived and expressed himself through making a mark on the page. And he, he, there are these series of self-portraits which record... the. I cannot think of another example that does it with such kind of vivid and excruciating immediacy. Bit by bit record what it is like to lose yourself. And he looks at himself, losing himself, and he records himself losing. So it's like a chronicle of the illness that he's going through. And actually, of all the people that I spoke to when I was writing the book, I, would, I spoke to lots of kind of family members, carers, scientists, artists. I asked all of the carers, when did they think they lost that person with dementia? When did they die, as it were? When were they gone? And I had expected people have lots of different answers for that and um mostly they said when they died actually they were they they were very clear that however much they lost it was when they died that they were gone but patricia said that with her husband william it was when he laid down his brush and could no longer make those marks on the page for, because for her it was that thing of being able to say I'm here. Here I am. And there are so many different ways that people find to say, here I am. And, and we have to learn to recognise those different languages. Running in parallel with this theme of, of, of language and communication is that of narrative, isn't it? Because there's one thing about trying to articulate or communicate the condition, but the condition is also, of course, profoundly linked to a fading of the past, a fading of a sense of time and awareness and there is this fascinating and poignant interplay. Because on, on the one hand, I think you reference Borges's character, Funes Memorias, who is cursed with yeah, this condition, yeah. but he remembers everything. <laughs> and that is, that is totally debilitating. And yet at the same time, remembering nothing is debilitating and you, and, and you lose yourself. So we're precariously balanced with regards to narrative and memory, aren't we? Yeah, and it absolutely makes you feel how kind of richly complicated it is to live in a mind, in a body. And what we're doing all the time without realising is this negotiation between 
what we have to forget. And you're right, we have to forget. And if, it's, it's a torment. If you remember everything, and there are people who have a condition and they remember everything, and it's a torment. And they're just overwhelmed by that. It's a curse and it's a suffering. At the same time, memory is what gives our life a shape. It's what makes us add all the different moments of our life together to make into a story. And we all tell, I think it's how we stay sane and it's how we survive and it's how we have relationships with other people and how we present ourselves to the world and how we present ourselves to the self is we make up a story and we choose what memories we're going to hold and shape. And with dementia, of course, bit by bit, that capacity gets lost. So there's a way in which when I was watching my father, bit by bit, his memories, his, his, his memories became kind of shrinking and shrinking. They became little islands, stories that he held, tiny little pieces of solid ground. If you wanted, this was before he went into hospital, if you wanted to make him feel better about himself, you would ask him about particular things that were vivid moments or vivid times in his life. And then, and then he could talk and tell you and you could feel that he was suddenly feeling kind of stable and at home with himself. And then there were other times, and I've seen this over and over again with people with dementia, when you can see them just, it's like they're, it's like they're adrift in their world, kind of reaching out for something to grasp hold of. And it's profoundly mm. painful seeing that. Nicky Gerrard mentioned the artist William Utemollen, whose astonishing self-portraits capture so powerfully the loss of self that comes with dementia. I spoke with Seb Crutch, Professor of Neuropsychology at the Dementia Research Centre at University College London, who is one of William Utemollen's psychologists, to help me understand what's happening to the brain during dementia. Seb, what actually is dementia, medically speaking? Dementia is an umbrella term that really captures any progressive condition affecting the brain, which leads to the deterioration of skills we rely on in everyday life, such as memory or language or perception. So it's commonly, the term dementia is commonly confused or conflated with Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common cause of dementia, but dementia is a syndrome. It's a collection of things that we notice that aren't working as they used to, that might get worse over time. Whereas conditions like Alzheimer's disease, they're, they're biological diseases. They have pathological hallmarks, so proteins in the brain, which are causing the cells of the brain initially not to work so well, not to communicate so well, and eventually for those cells to die off, leading to shrinkage of either specific parts of the brain or the brain as a whole. Do we know what causes it? Is there anything specific that brings it on? There are many different combination of factors, some genetic. So most of us uh, may have a genetic profile that leads us to be marginally more or less likely than the next person to develop these proteins in our brain, which inhibit the brain's function. Uh, we know that our behaviour in life and our environment also affect those things. So, for example, if you are diabetic, 
if you are a heavy smoker or drinker, if you have a lifestyle which uh, for doctors for many years have told us is bad for your heart, then there's a good chance that, that lifestyle is also bad for your head. Are different parts of the brain disproportionately affected by the process? Yes, it depends on which disease is causing the degeneration, but certain diseases are particularly associated with damaging certain parts of the brain. So, for example, Alzheimer's disease initially targets the so-called temporal um, and parietal parts of the brain, so particularly parts of the brain, some of the older parts of the brain, which are particularly important in laying down new memories. So there's a structure called the hippocampus and another called the entorhinal cortex, which seem to take an early hit in Alzheimer's disease. But it's not always the same parts of the brain in everybody. So there are some people who have Alzheimer's disease, which preferentially affects the visual parts at the back of the brain, leaving memory relatively spared. And there are also certain parts of the brain, which in most people remain relatively unaffected. So particularly sensory parts of the brain and emotional circuits of the brain in Alzheimer's disease are relatively spared till later in the condition. But if you have a different cause of your dementia, then it might be a different set of networks um, and centres that are affected early. Does our understanding of the way the brain degenerates during this illness, does it shape our understanding of which parts of the brain are associated with our sense of ourself? Or is it more the case that that sense is spread out throughout the entire brain? Yeah, the brain is very specialised. Obviously, sense of self, some of these broader kind of concepts, the way we think about ourselves, don't rely on any one particular set of cells, but a complex interplay of different parts of the brain. But broadly speaking, people would think of the front of the brain as being critical to our sense of personality, controlling and influencing what we do and don't do, um, how we think of others and our ability to reflect on our own actions and monitor our own behaviours. For example, there are a group of people with a condition called frontotemporal dementia, which are a group of diseases which preferentially affect the front of the brain. And it's in those people where those who know them well, those close to them, comment on and observe this progressive, insidious change in their personality, their empathy for others, um, their level of motivation um, and the types of behaviour that they engage in. Are there any signs of being able to treat or even cure Alzheimer's or dementia conditions? Yes, there are, there are very promising avenues and our awareness increasing of these conditions has led to a huge growth in the number of researchers, the amount of research funding that is being poured into addressing the central challenge of developing a disease-modifying therapy, something that will either slow down or eventually perhaps even prevent um, these conditions such as Alzheimer's disease from developing. So I don't think this century will see us curing ageing by any, any stretch. There will continue to be age-related cognitive changes that we all endure and experience. But these specific neurological conditions, particular sequences of protein misfolding, some of those will be amenable to therapy before too long. Well, let's hone in on that critical but difficult to pinpoint idea of being a self or being yourself or being recognisably yourself. And there are so many different dimensions of it that your book draw out that I doubt whether we'll cover all of them. But 
one that really struck me was vulnerability and dependency. And particularly with regards to vulnerability, nobody seeks to be vulnerable. Nobody seeks their physical demise and, and dependency. But at the same time, as you rightly say in the book, decline is part of who we are. We are always impermanent, always growing towards our end. We're born into dependency and dependency is part of the human condition. I grew up and came of age with feminism. And one of the things that I kind of held most precious for a lot of years was the idea that we are individuals. We seek autonomy. Agency is vital. Self-sufficiency, independence of kind of body and mind and circumstance. We're kind of newly minted, if you like. We can make ourselves. And these words that I use so blithely, above all the word agency, what I began to learn seeing my father thinking about this disease, getting older myself, actually, is that that is just very kind of simple and limited way of thinking about what it is to be in the world. We like to think we're not vulnerable. We are all (laughs) vulnerable. We are all going to die in the end. Some of us die earlier, some of us die later, some of us die well, and some of us die incredibly badly. We are all going to have to need other people. In the Western society, I think that we have so overvalued certain qualities like independence, like health, like vigour, like alacrity. And we have so undervalued things like compassion, collaboration, helping other people and then being helped in our turn. And we have so turned away from the idea of kind of common goods and being at each other's mercy, which is quite scary thought because you have to be exposed really. You have to kind of let yourself be open to hurt to accept that idea. And yes, it feels absolutely kind of in order to lead a life which is kind and rich and fulfilling and fully in touch with oneself, we have to accept vulnerability. And for me, it's much easier to think of other people's vulnerability, of being reached out to. (laughs) You know, I had no problem with people reaching out to me and then I can kind of hold out my hand i mean i think that's a very natural human instinct but at the same time as you rightly say it's one that's deeply deeply ingrained in our culture there are almost two philosophical figures hovering in the back of what you write and you mentioned both of them actually one is peter singer who at one point you mentioned he has a list of the qualities for personhood things like self-awareness self-control a sense of the future a sense of the past a capacity to relate to others so on and so forth which is very bracing, putting it one way, but <laughs> but it excludes a large number of people that instinctively we want to think are fully persons, not least people who are suffering various stages of dementia, doesn't it? People with mental health problems, people with disabilities, people with dementia are excluded from that list. And I think you're the philosopher. <laughs> and I'm just the person <laughs> yes. kind of reading these things and trying to think them through from my own point of view, it seems to me that there's a big difference between self-identity, a sense sense of oneself and a self. So people in their very last stages of dementia, it's fair to say that they have lost a sense 
of themselves. They don't know who they are or how they connect to the world. They have none of Peter Singer's self-awareness. So that has, that has gone. And they live in a present that's not connected to the past and not connected to the future. So they, they, they've become unstrung, if you like. So they don't have that sense of self. But then the leap that we often make, and it's a cruel leap, is to say then they don't have a self. And then if you say they don't have a self, you're saying they're not really human, that they're, they're less human, they're less valuable. We can treat them as less valuable. They're not persons, effectively. They're not persons. They're not yeah. subjects of their own lives. They yeah. have no individual self. And we can then just dismiss them. And that's what we've done. Yeah. And that's what we've done for decades in this society. So I would say that what's been happening with coronavirus in care homes, where care homes were in many ways treated as dustbins. Yes. Um, and people with COVID were discharged into the care homes. Yeah. Because it didn't matter somehow, because they were old. Or you read obituaries of people who died and you say, oh, but they were old. What, mm. what is the but doing in that sentence? The but yeah. is in that sentence because we have somehow, even the kindest and best of us have learnt to think of people who are, whose capacities are diminished mm. as being lesser, of being less, having less of a self and less of a value. That's right. And the, I mean, the other problem with that Peter Singer kind of comparison is it's very either or. So on the one hand, as you say, it threatens to put some people who have diminished self-awareness and so on and so forth into the dustbin, effectively. But it also assumes that the rest of us are fully cognizant, that we are fully self-aware and fully self-controlled and have an accurate sense of the future and the past. And I think a moment self-examination realises that we're nothing like as self-controlled as all that, or even as self-aware. We delude ourselves and our agency is diminished. So it's not an us and them. Actually, there's a great mass of grey area in between, so to speak, as it were. Yeah, absolutely, in everybody. And also, these people that we are now, who we like to think of as being kind of vigorous and self-aware, we're always heading in the direction of helplessness, aren't we? So we're condemning Mm. our future selves. Mm. over and again but we don't like to think of that because it's 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 disturbing mm. Rowan Williams somewhere has got a lovely line about agency that you were talking about earlier and choice they're not about being able to choose what I want to do they're more about being able to choose who I want to receive help from <laughs> that's very good also I mean I have a problem I increasingly have a problem with the word I or the word self or with all these singulars because for instance I'm somebody I'm completely different I have a different kind of side of myself or maybe a different self when I'm with my children than when I'm with Sean and when I'm with work colleagues than when I'm with strangers and so we kind of flick between all these Mm. selves all the time I once did some research many, many years ago, 20 years ago, when I was working for an organisation called the Henley Centre, in which we had ran focus groups and we asked people to write down and articulate how they understood themselves. Interestingly, nobody defined themselves as a consumer, or very few people. (laughs) Hardly anyone defined themselves as an individual, but the words they did use were father, mother, brother, son, supporter, so on and so forth. All of these concepts were personal concepts in the sense that my identity is ineradicably linked to the relationships I have. Yeah, yeah. And that feels that feels right. That leads us to, as it were, that other philosopher, theologian, 
who stands just in the background here, Martin Buber, whom you again quote, there is no I without you, no me without us. That seems to be a kind of a basis for your point there about the word I is a bit misleading, really, because there is no I. What does it mean? So it's Martin Buber and it's Judith Butler in her own different ways saying this over and over again, is that it's a bit like there's an ant and there's the anthill and you can't really distinguish what an ant is from what the anthill is. And I think humans are like that. We just don't like to think that we're like that. That sense that we make meaning between, we make meaning of ourselves in relationship with someone else. And the meaning isn't just residing in us. It's kind of in the world between, between us. In all these, di- It makes me feel very happy, that thought. It, it makes the world feel electric, with all these mm. different meanings. Mm. There's a kind of mirroring in life then, isn't there? Because in the last stages, particularly of this disease, when you become more and more dependent on people, that sense of yourself being tightly linked to those who love you and care for you is there. And it's the same at the beginning of life as well, isn't it? That That is a profound yeah. point of absolute dependency. Yeah. So I've spent a lot of time going around kind of visiting people with dementia and their carers and being in hospitals and being in care homes. And I am very struck by how at the end of their lives, these people, their selves are being kind of held, if you like, or contained by those who love them the most. So their memories are being held by those who love them the most. And their relationship with the world is in the other people. It's a kind of extraordinary act of containment of the person by the people that they most love almost enough to make me religious (laughs) this view of the person and of our dependency and our vulnerability and our relational nature and of course your experience of that that's what underlies john's campaign isn't it tell me tell us about that so john's campaign i set it up with a friend of mine called julia shortly after my father died because it suddenly occurred to me that it's a madness that people with dementia are left on their own in hospitals when they go into other residential settings. You wouldn't let a child be left on its own. So I think that in 20 years' time, it will feel crazily unacceptable that people with dementia, at their time of greatest needs, are not allowed to be accompanied at all times Mm. by the people who care for the most. And it was as simple as that. So we set up this campaign to say the person with dementia has a right to be accompanied by family Mm. whenever they leave home. People were very resistant, not to the idea, but to the practice. So it took five years, really, four and a half years of going around hospital after hospital. It's hard to see. I can't quite understand why people would be resistant. You asked, Nick. I found it... Every so often I would just stop and think, why is this campaign necessary? It's just a matter of kind of common humanity and decency. Mm. And also it's very practical. It helps nurses and doctors. It means that people in hospital are kept mobile, are kept healthy, and they don't get destroyed by their experiences. They don't get wrecked. And because what happened to my father actually happened to tens of thousands of other people across the country. And it was a very common story, which doctors actually knew about, but somehow didn't react to. And all I can say in response to your why is that I think change is hard. Mm. Even very good change is hard. And this is such, was such an ingrained thing. 
you say at one point, I think it's become easier to live longer, but harder to die well. In a sense, you could extend that to say it's become easier to live longer, but harder to live well as well. I mean, we can <laughs> extend life wonderfully, but if life is understood simply as a biological process of a reasonably functioning body, great. But that ain't life. That's not flourishing. No, no that's existence, isn't it? Exactly. That is existence. And, and what we want is life. And we want, yes. flour- we want this flourishing. Yes. Yeah. Let me draw our conversation to a conclusion. I was struck by the title of the book when I first saw it, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love, because I'm sure there are many books about dementia, but that juxtaposition was was striking. And having read the book, it struck me as a book about love, primarily. So I guess my, my, my parting question has to be, what does dementia teach us about love? So I should be better at answering this question, given that it's the title of my book. But it's a very big question. And the first thing I'd say about that title is that I was very keen to think about what we learn from people with dementia, not just how we can treat them better, but how they can teach us to be better people in the world. So, so and you're right that love over and over again, it seems to me, goes to the heart of what I'm saying, but not love in a kind of saccharine, easy way. I mean, love is very hard. (laughs) Proper, enduring love is the most difficult thing that we do, I would say. How to care for somebody while also enabling them to flourish and be free. How to care for people and not be destroyed ourselves in that act of caring. And that actually is very crucial through the book, is that how to be a carer and not be a martyr and not be wrecked by that and lay yourself on the altar of the other person. So Mm. all the lessons about being loyal, being kind, not being disgusted, being patient, but also tending to oneself applying those same kind of qualities of kindness to oneself feel really vital to me in this, the hard journey Mm. it is when somebody becomes very vulnerable Mm. and undefended. And then in a more existential way, I suppose I'd say that the conversation that we were having earlier about learning that we are not just individuals on our own particular journey. We're in this world together. We we, we hold this world in common. We are at each other's mercy and we need to be loving to each other. We need to be loving even to the people that we don't love at all. Hmm. Um, and we need to, and we need to keep, we need to be attentive to that as well because it's, it's hard to do that. It is. It's the most difficult thing we do, but also the most important thing we do as human beings. It is. The book is called What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. Nikki, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for talking to Reading Our Times. Thank you for having me here. Next week, I'll be speaking to Thomas Piketty about his books Capital in the 21st Century and Capital and Ideology. Now, in terms of wealth share, it's even more extreme than that. Basically, the bottom 50% owns nothing at all. Reading Our Times comes to you from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team also includes Abby Allison, Lizzie Stanley, 
and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find all the episodes and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people discover the podcast. Thank you.